Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In today's episode, I interview human connection specialist, in-demand speaker and just all-around great guy, Mark Groves, on all things relationships, how to find love, deal with loss and the number one relationship killers. Mark also shares some great tips on how to bounce back from a rejection and some tips for men on how to embrace emotions and connections. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Mark Groves, I'm so excited to be talking to you again. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. Thanks so much for having me back, I say, because we, we did have a jam session on Instagram. We did. It was so good. We had such a good jam session, as you said, on Instagram Live. And everyone loved you to bits. So I just know that you they're going to carry on loving you to bits. You just had such great advice and you're so, so much fun. And you make <laughs> you make hard, like a great topic that can be kind of touchy. You make it very accessible, which is really important. That was something that I, well, I never, when I was a class clown as a kid, you don't really think <laughs> like one day this is going to pay off. But that is something that has always been very dear to me is, is that we can have fun and we can learn and we can, we can go through pain and suffering and also hold space for joy and, and just the ridiculousness of life, the ridiculousness of relationship and being a human and the complexities. It, you have to just throw your hands up and laugh in a lot of yeah, exactly. I agree with you. And, it, and there is so much humor in it. I mean, sometimes if you think of the things, if I just think I've been married 32 years now, and if I think of some of the things that we laugh about or some of the things that we used to get upset about that are just hilarious now, you know, you, you do that humor. And my husband's always brought that into our relationship. He's quite a serious guy, but he's got this very humorous side. And my kids call them dad jokes. But oh, I yeah. find it, he finds me funny and I find him funny, but he always finds something and it really does break the ice, Mark. It just that, that it silly, stupid humor that maybe only you two laugh at, but it works. Yeah. You know, in the research humor and the ability to joke about stuff is such a, I mean, that doesn't need research to be validated. Exactly. It, it helps repair. It brings joy back to, and there's, I mean, when you're in the midst of a conflict and, and as long as you're not using humor as a way of distracting or, yes. or avoiding, which I've certainly had done that in my past. 
No, yeah, that can be a, that definitely be an issue. Well, Mark, we just dived in already. Can you, do you mind introducing yourself? I've done a great bio of people who, but it's always nice to hear from you, who you are, what you do, what motivates you. And of course, I'm going to ask you for something that's not in your bio because we like to see the little insider information. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't wait to hear what my insider info is going to uh, be. <laughs> Let's see what spills out. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, my name is Mark Groves. I have an Instagram called Create the Love. That was derived from, I was really struck by how many people sort of thought that relationships, good ones, really were a matter of luck, that you found someone you were lucky to find and you just happened to work out and they're your soulmate and blah, blah, blah. You know, Disney has really done a good job of reinforcing this, a very unrealistic expectation. Yeah. You know, we don't fall in the hands of love. You know, they, it's a skill set and everyone can learn it. It's not limited to the wealthy. It's not limited to anyone. It's an opportunity for all of us. And it was really important to me. I was in my late 20s when I actually started doing this work. I didn't really start teaching it till my early to mid 30s. And that was the reason it start, I started to do the sort of work and analysis is that I had had a relationship end. And when my relationship ended in my late 20s, I thought to myself, like, how did I get here? How how did I get to a place where I feel so disconnected from myself and really had been for a series of years living a life that when I looked back really wasn't the life I wanted. And I was blessed because the partner who I was with at the time was and is an incredible human. So that made it even more conflicting. Why didn't I want to be in a relationship with this incredible person? And it made me start to, I mean, at the time I was in sales and pharmaceutical sales. So I was very fascinated by science and research. My dad had studied heart failure. So I very much loved science and I loved systemic thinking and all those types of things, making patterns make sense. And when that relationship ended, I started to ask myself questions like, why am I so good at communicating everything but my feelings? And that's not a skill set issue. That's something else is going on. And I never even thought about the vast array of subconscious, unconscious conditioning that shapes what we're choosing and how we're showing up. And why are we afraid of conflict? Why do we shut down? You know, all these different things. And I honestly, I I was kind of angry at the world at the time because I felt like I'd been lied to or misled till I woke up through that breakup and realized that I wasn't living a life that was true to me. I wasn't paying attention as a Catholic. I was taught you get married, you die in love. But then I looked around me and I'm like, well, my friend's parents are getting divorced. A lot of people who have been together 75 years hate each other. I'm like, so why am I not, why did I not notice this? And so I started to teach it because I felt no one was telling the truth, which I think is a exaggeration, but in- No, I love that. That's how it felt. Like I felt no one was actually saying like relationships are hard and they end and that's okay. Because I faced a lot of shame, a lot of projected opinions on my relationship ending. And I really started to feel for anyone who was stuck in horrible search situations and circumstances and couldn't leave or just didn't want to be in the relationship anymore and couldn't leave because they were trapped by society's judgment of them. And you know, I'm a firm believer that I don't get to decide other people's relationship outcomes. If someone wants to leave their relationship, it's not up to me to say that's right or wrong because that's just a projection of what I believe is right and wrong. So that's how it all started. 
Well, it's a great start. And you know what, you've obviously hit a, hit a chord because you have a tremendous response to what you're saying. So I think it's really important. It's an important message. And you're kind of speaking a lot of the things that you know, they're killing a few, speaking about a few sacred cows there, you know, and I love that. I love to speak to people that do that because I do a lot of that. So that's why I'm trying to get all these, I get all these <laughs> great people like yourself on, on these podcasts because every time there's something amazing that, that people can bring to the table and you bring something amazing to the table. So I've got some really good questions for you that are going to make you think. Is that okay? Well, I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's okay. think. Okay. Okay. So you are, and I love this, you're a human connection specialist. That's just so cool. So what does it mean? And how do you help people? Well, as a person who worked in sales and really the majority of my, I was in sales since I was 17 and then went to university and got out and did a more quote unquote professional version of sales. And I was always so fascinated by human behavior and how to get people to change behavior. But, you know, it was motivated by, I want you to use my product, not someone else's, or I want you to change, you know, this or that. And I started to see that like I, I became very good at it. I was really good at it. I was naturally good at it. And then once I gathered more information, I got really good at it. And that I saw when I started to study romantic relationships that really what we tend to struggle with in any area of our life will just be magnified in our romantic relationships. So they became, it sort of went, it was sort of a synergistic experience. One, as I studied romantic relationships, I saw that there was an opportunity to really find people's stuff quickly and, and where they struggle, where their challenges are, and then work on it. And if we worked on that, if we could, if you can get to a place where you find some level of ongoing mastery, because mastery is always work in progress, it's always got a, uh, I think, you know, the ultimate ingredient to mastery is curiosity and humility. And so, if you could get there, then all your other relationships are, they're nothing. They're not even a challenge. Because if you can face rejection and abandonment and someone who you love not agreeing with your view of the world, but not make it about you, just make it about the relationship needing to be moved forward or resolved or whatever, then you're not performing for anybody. You're not changing who you are. You're just showing up. And then work becomes easy. Work conflicts become easy. Everything becomes simple after that. And so what I saw, though, was that if I went in, in the context of romantic relationships, men don't tend to seek out romantic relationship information. But if I went into a workplace and taught a secret of rapport and influence or something like that, and then we, or leadership or teamwork or boundaries at work, and then I started to talk about relationship research from romantic relationships what I really saw was people perked up who had never had sought out this information. But I saw it especially with men that there was finally sort of this permission, not obviously by me, but just by there being a space that there being a better leader, you know, quote unquote. But really, I saw them say, you know, they would say things like, wait, so at home, if I was to do this, that would occur. Or you're saying that my communication at home is because of this. And there was no longer like a archetype of what a male was supposed to be being enforced. We were sort of actually playing in the space of leadership or sales or, you know. But you were in romantic relationships, so it went down that road. Yeah. So it was this really cool ability to talk about relationships in general. And I never wanted to specialize and I don't specialize just in romantic relationships because for me and in the research, you know, I like to reference because there's always skeptics is that 
The longest running study on well-being is the Harvard Men's Study, which now has a different name. I think it's called the Harvard Well-Being Study. Anyways, studies a couple generations of graduates from Harvard versus non-graduate people from other areas of Boston. And the number one predictor of your health at 80 was the quality of your relationships at age 50. And it was not just romantic relationships. It was relationships of all kinds. So if you were not in romantic partnership, you could actually get the same health benefits And so that shows you that it's relating that matters. It's not, it's knowing that when things are hard or you're in challenges, and this is true at work too, and I think this is especially being tested right now, will you be there for me? And friendships can provide that, you know, so, and workplaces can provide that, but workplaces are often the first to abandon people the moment things get hard because it's always about bottom line. For some companies. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. So if, if that, you know, that's, that's lovely. So connect, human connection, it's, I mean, it's, we, we can't do without it. So exactly. to, actually, to actually put the name and to get people to focus on that, you're saying it's actually grabbing people's attention. They hadn't thought about that because we're so used to, as you say, terms like leadership and all those things. But to be a, those are just kind of outcroppings deep down inside. It's that craving that we have for connection in whatever mm-hmm. form. And it's so important. Those deep, meaningful connections are so important. That really, you, the, the title that you use it gets to me because, I'm a, as you know, I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm mm-hmm. also a communication pathologist. And it's not something that most people even know about that as a profession, where you actually look at the a person's behavior and you track back to the thoughts, you track back to the brain science. It's an interesting sort of combination. So when you talk about that, I really can relate to that because it's what people are doing that has got a root and it's driven by that connection. So you really hit on something that's extremely important. And it's interesting how they perked up your, your in corporate in the romantic relationship side showing how yeah. at the core we want that we want to do it well but we need to learn how to do it well so it's a skill yeah and if you get good at one you will you will be so good at the, any of the others and that's what i love about it is is you heal in one area and uh, i mean your patterns of limitations will if you have bad boundaries at work you'll have horrible boundaries at home you know and that's evident that you'll see that all the time in You know, the other side of it, too, that I observe a lot is in the context of communication about relationship at work is workplaces are often afraid to talk about love. They're afraid to talk about love, especially giant corporations. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't seem like love matches corporate. Love is just not, it's not the ooey gooey stuff. It's actually how you function. That's how you are a decent human. Yeah. And they, I think there's a fear that if we talk about love at work, then our employees are going to have sex with each other and people are going to fall in love with at work. And, and it's the word love is also, as you said, a ooey gooey and they're afraid of that, especially older companies, more share trading, that kind of stuff. Those are more profit driven because there's not an immediate cost benefit to investment in relational, like you can't do it and then see a sales spike within a month, but you can do it. And what will go down is your healthcare costs because the conflict at home follows conflict at work. I mean, it's mm, also it's, related it's to me. It's all a downstream, isn't it? Exactly. It's a downstream effect. You get people satisfied in, in, in how to handle a relationship. As you say, the carryover effect and the downstream, there's two benefits of that. You know, and that's, yes. it's, it's, and that's what we saw when I was practicing still and practicing as a neuroscientist and communication pathologist coming from quite a medical and scientific angle. The biggest problem that always hits, and it hits every therapist, anyone who's working 
working with people is carry over. But if you tackle the right foundation, so the point I'm making is that when you hit connection, when you hit human connection, when you when you get to the core of who, that a person feels valued for who they are and then in their relationships, there is automatically a carryover into other areas of their life. So I'm really glad yes. you brought that up. That carryover effect is extremely real when you hit the right buttons. Yeah, it's it's kind of a moot experience, you know, a moot point. And the the thing that I find fascinating about old school workplaces, but I'd say there's 90% of them, is they don't realize that, well, one, all you have to do is go to a Christmas party and you see that people are falling in love at work. And most affairs happen at work about 70% of affairs, you know, so there's a lot of love happening at work. And, you know, people are not generally going to get relationship education on their own unless they're seeking it out. They're following people like you listening to your podcast and they're, they're not going to do it generally on their own. And if a workplace provides it, the workplace will see, I mean, divorce is contagious. When one person gets divorced, people around them get divorced. That's true of all mm, lifestyle habits. Everything, yeah. Yep. yeah. You kind of make, yeah, that's true. So if you create a culture in your workspace of one of love, acceptance, and we'll help you build relationships. It's going. It's, no I, I love, it's a no-brainer. And I love the fact that you, it's not the bottom line. You can't measure that. Your sales will go up. It's more, your, your health insurance costs will go down. There's going to be- it's Way going, down. Exactly. You're going to have happier employees. You're going to have, have a happier environment. You're going to have better boundaries. You're going to have more productivity. So it's a long-term investment. For sure. You know, like what do we do when our relationships are struggling or we had a fight with our partner and we go to work and then we're ruminating all day. Our productivity is way down. If we're going through divorce, I believe- in some of the research, it's hard to measure though, the impact of a divorce on employee is like 12 to 18 months of lost productivity, which brings down the productivity of people around them. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, the bottom line message is, is that we need to invest in the way that we relate. And when we invest in the way that we relate, all of a sudden we get payback in spades. And it's not a shock that you know, in, there's a book called, I think it's called The Culture Code. Yeah, that's right. The Culture Code. And in The Culture Code, they talk about what are the core parts of a corporate culture that actually make it successful. And one of the ones that I love that they emphasize is psychological safety, the safety to be oneself. Well, that's the exact same thing as a family or a relationship, right? So we see that we're building families at work. And, you know, I hope that companies, if you own one and you're listening, do it because your part, your employees will be so grateful. Oh, I, I love this. You know, in Japan, I'm sure you're aware of this, but when you join a firm, you're joining a family. They talk about that. I as didn't being, know that. I yeah, love that. They they talk about it like you, and you pretty much join for life. It's not like you, so they look after the employees. They build this family culture. They build this relationship culture. Mm. And so there's this loyalty and the supporting. It's totally different. And it's a whole community mindset thing where they've done studies where they've looked at, uh, compared the American culture, very individualistic to the more community oriented Japanese culture. And they've asked like, what's the most important thing for you as a person? And someone in Japan will say, me in the community, the difference I can make in the community. So they see that their mm. culture and their work life is community. So their work life's not separate and they're joining a family. In the United States, it is me, myself, my goals, my passions, I, yeah. I, I. And, you know, we're seeing a massive difference in terms of people not the family culture is not built. So it's what you're saying. We need to actually introduce that. Thank goodness you're doing what you do, that you're actually reintroducing something that is actually core to our common, to how we function as humans. Oh, thank you. I'm excited about it. I love it. I mean, I think the subject, I, no one can deny that that's ultimately why we're here, you know, and, and it anesthetizes the, 
existential pain of knowing that one day we will no longer be. And love has a way of sort of keeping us eternally feeling, eternally connected. I love it. It's perpetuating. It creates Mm -hmm. a feeling of that it's going to perpetuate. There was purpose and reason. So good. Okay, Mark, I mean, this is just, I love this discussion. Okay, so what do you think are some of the major relationship killers in a relationship? How do we become, and how do we become aware of them? So relationship killers and how do we become aware and how can we deal with them? Oh, relationship killers. One is communication patterns. You know what I, and I think this goes to number two, which is we often think the other person's the problem, solely the problem. This comes back. So the way that that relates to communication is that communication is a dance. It takes two always, you know, the other person might be more withdraws, shuts down, leaves or gets angry or is explosive. And I'm not talking about abuse, just talking about maybe intensity. And so what happens is, is we believe the other person from a righteous space is the one at fault, not taking responsibility for, you know, it's like any dance, you know, uh, any relationship dance is, let's say, let's just call it the polka. So we're doing the polka, the polka is dysfunctional. It's not, I mean, no offense if you love the polka, but the polka is dysfunctional and it's in this context and it's frustrating and we're having the same conversations over and over again. And you can really see what someone, Mona Fishbane is a researcher, she talks about these called uh, vulnerability cycles that, that you can simply find it by filling in the space of when I do this, it causes you to do this, which makes me do this and this to happen. So we might say, when you get upset, I withdraw, which makes you more upset, which makes me withdraw more and leave. And what you'll see is most couples have all couples have these impasses where they get to a place where there's no way to get by because they just do the same dance over and over again. So if that's the polka, all it requires is one, ideally two, but one person to change their behavior, to stop participating in the polka and start doing, let's say, the two-step. Well, We all know that, I mean, at least for me, I'm not the most organized of dancers in terms of those dances, literally not communication-wise, but I, of course, have my things. I'm human. But in it, when someone else changes their footsteps, we struggle at first. We all know that feeling when you're like, oh, I step on your feet. And that's normal. That's what happens when you change the way you communicate. What People don't have a lot of tolerance for uncertainty. Maybe that's one of the other ones, which is, as you know, from a neuropathway perspective, the idea that I'm going to try a different way of communicating with you. Like if normally I criticize you, I come to you and say like, you never do this. That's a horrible way to start any conversation. Guaranteed to cause a fight. Yeah, exactly. Because that's trigger criticism. Use the word you, puts people in defensive. It makes it, it gets you at your core. It's one of those gets you at your core things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what occurs if I all of a sudden said, hey, you know, the other day when this happened, I felt, well, now I've changed the way I'm communicating. And what usually occurs for people is they'll change the way they, they communicate. And if their partner doesn't respond the way they want, they think the way they communicated was not successful, not seeing that actually the growth is in the change of behavior. The other person will change their dance. But at first, well, when couples, you know, have been in a 10-year cycle and one person changes it, the other person doesn't believe them. You know, they're kind of like, wait, this is unfamiliar. You usually attack me. I usually feel not good enough around you. Why all of a sudden are you respecting me and communicating in a loving way? So they're like suspicious almost. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They don't trust it because it feels like it's coming with a hook. What's the side, you know, what's the side swipe, you know? Exactly. 
So it takes some tolerance for not knowing how a conversation is going to go. But we, as humans, as you know full well from a neurological perspective, we would rather a, fa- a pain that's familiar than and certain than an uncertain possibility yes. of everything we've always wanted. Exactly. And, and yet we need that for our growth. And that's something exactly. that I try and teach with my work is to try and help people to be and to sit with the uncomfortable and to be comfortable with it, because it's really in the depths of that murkiness that you'll find the gold diamond at the bottom. It's everything. You know, it's, it's everything. everything. It's life. And everyone's saying it, all of us that are in this space that are trying to help other people. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer and tree-free paper products. I love how Public Goods makes it easy to shop for all essentials in one place and how beautiful the items are packaged and look. No more ugly soap bottles or containers in my house. I also really appreciate how Public Goods makes an effort to source items that are good for me, my family and our planet. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make big impact on our mental and physical health and the world at large. We worked out an exclusive deal just for the Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you'll absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. The link and more details will be in the show notes. I interview so many people, Mark, and everyone is saying the same thing. So it's like we know the stuff that each of us is bringing it to the table in a slightly different way. What we need to do is transition as a, as humanity from knowing the stuff to actually doing the stuff. And I and mm-hmm. I think a large problem over the, my my opinion, and, and I'd love your opinion on this, but I think a large the way if I look at it over the thirty eight years of my career that I've seen this transition of people's deepness and spirituality and this like deep stuff that we're talking about being very valued to being Mm -hmm. not valued to becoming very mechanistic so as the biomedical model hit people became biological automatums and everything was measured by symptoms and behaviors and you know especially with the in the 80s we didn't have we had very limited ways of looking at the brain by the mid 90s we had much more advanced ways and now we've got even more advanced ways but it was good and it was bad and I remember in the 80s being told when I said that the mind can change the brain and we can do these deep things we're talking about I was told by my professors, except for a couple, that it was ridiculous, that why are you doing this? I mean, if the brain's damaged, that's it, your brain can't grow. Your brain is your mind because there was a big move in the 80s to say your yeah. brain can't grow and you everything in your brain and, you know, the DNA, the gene, the gene myth was very dominant. And, you know, I was fighting against that. And it was, was, it was honestly, there were very few of us in the 80s fighting against that. But it's now that cycle of everything you've got to see, you've got to measure, you've got to reduce, you've got to be mm-hmm. checklist, everything's a number, evidence-based medicine, which I'm all for. I've just done a random controlled trial, but I've shown with the kind of trials I do that you don't have to look at numbers. You can actually look at case studies and you can mm-hmm. get as statistically significant results that are evidence-based by looking at the individual within their story. And, you know, mm. so the transition happened. So we've now see 30 years later, 40 years later, that 
people are dying younger because of lifestyle diseases. The trend is reversed. It's insane. And we're tracking it back to lifestyle, which is mind, which is who are we? Human stuff, the stuff we're talking about, communication, love, all this stuff. I don't know. That's my opinion. What's yours around that? Because kind of what you're saying about relationship I have a hell yeah to everything you just said. As someone who used to work in pharma, I mean, I saw that, that, you know, my father studied, uh, researched heart failure. So, I mean, I was around cardiologists my whole childhood, around all sorts, sorts of specialists and GPs. And I really saw, and I did it too, till I stopped doing it, is we really make, you know, which we make physicians gods, which, which don't get me wrong, it's a very high value position and it's healing and it's all that. But there is no one way to heal. And there, I think what has occurred so much, and we see this a lot in politics now, the exact same issue, which is my way is the right way. My, we see this in religion. My God is the right God. My story is the right story. We are so terrified of possibly being wrong. And this is true in relationship to, can I hold space for your world and your experience to be different than mine? That in a conflict, you know, it's a, I am really like frustrated with currently in the world that we pretty much dismiss any information that challenges our mainstream narrative and our mainstream. When was freedom of speech not encouraged that we were allowed to not agree with? You're allowed to not agree with, no matter what your view on vaccines is, which is such a triggering topic for everybody, except for the people who have a differing view on it. And I find that very fascinating that as soon as someone says, hey, have you read the research on some studies on how this vaccine caused this? They go, you're an anti-vaxxer. And I'm like, look at how we create. And I'm not getting into that subject because that's a whole other subject. But I, I bring it up because it's so viscerally triggering. People automatically shut down from a neurological perspective. I mean, they can't even hear anymore. But that is exactly what occurs when we're afraid of something being not true, that we base our identity upon, that we base our behaviors and our, our anything that we base our identity upon, you know, it's, and you see this a lot in the context of religion, that as soon as you hear the possibility that, you know, that some like gay marriage was a big one for that, right? Like all of a sudden people who are gay want to get married. That affects no one, really. It doesn't affect you if you don't want to. But what it does is if my religion says that's not okay, and I actually make a concession for that, oh, God bless you for doing that. If I make a concession for that, now I have to question what other things might not be true. And that's so, what people are uncomfortable with. People don't want to do that because that it's like accepting for people who are like, my childhood was so amazing. That's often an answer I get. And sure, it was, but everyone has a family story and a family experience and inherited wounds. No one escapes childhood without some form of pain because we're human. That's just how it works, right? And But they don't want to take the veil and the pedestal they've placed their parents on off. And, and because by doing that, they open the possibility to, what other things have I ignored? What other things are untrue in my life? And that's where I said, like the true, one of the true most core key things of successfully navigating relationship is being able to hold different truths as possible, two opposing truths as possible, and not being reactive. 
No, that's so, it's so important because it's the reactivity or the argument comes in if you're not in my tribe, if you're not believing what I'm believing. How you said that to hold two alternate truths at the same time and still agree to disagree and to still be able to love that person despite that and to still be able to continue. That's the key, holding those two things in your mind. And quantum physics confirms that. Quantum physics is the most fundamental, the most accurate of sciences, and it's totally spiritual. And what we're talking about here is very spiritual stuff. I mean, this is deep stuff. This is is. the unconscious mind stuff that we're talking about. And quantum physics shows that before we things go, particles go into into a state of, before they collapse, they go into this this, this state, this holding freeze frame state where all, all possibilities are considered mm. and it's a, it's a fundamental law of nature and then you as a person the, the observer effect the person is the most important part of quantum physics why because they're the ones that make the choice so the quantum physicists mm. will tell you and the theorists will tell you that a person being able to hold possibilities the multiple possibilities which look like these waves that build just before the wave crashes there's all the water particles are held in a possibility of going into a collapsed state all these options are in a collapsed state mm. all these truths in the relationship or in this the state and then from there they you make the choice and it can collapse as a piece as a wave but it doesn't have to be conflictual it can be a wave that just flows and then it goes back in the water or it can be a big fight kind of thing so i mean i'm going off there but the science totally like supports that that's how it's the truth it's how we function so See, you've got to hold your truths i love it i think if people can be open to that right like that's you know, physics and quantum, we even want that. Like, we want that measurement, that validation, that science confirms this thing that we know. I remember listening to a talk from Ram Das. I mean, there's a guy who was a social scientist living, you know, going to Harvard, gets kicked out of Harvard because he starts doing LSD and goes down this super spiritual path. And what's very fascinating about that experience is here's someone who's held two spaces, but I remember him saying, miracles are a way of reminding us that we don't actually know how it works. And I think about that of like, I love research and I love evidence and I also believe in miracles and I can hold both of those possibilities. Exactly, exactly. I love what you've just said. You can hold both possibilities because if you look at what the word science means, it means knowledge. And so that means that, that all knowledge is something that we need to be able to hold in our space. So we, we can, and I always say like you can't say science and spirituality are in conflict. And I talk about spirituality in a very broad sense in terms of mm-hmm. our deep knowingness and all the stuff we're talking about, relational and everything, all the stuff where you go just beyond what you can physically see, you actually can hold science and spirituality are the same thing. They are a constant process of discovery, but they're two sides of the same coin. So if we don't separate them, then we don't need to have any kind of conflict. It's a moot point. And so in religion and science fighting, and I mean, I've had this 20 years when I go into churches and teach, or I teach in a trained physicians or whatever, I work with scientists to people in churches. I teach the same thing. Science and spirituality Mm. are two sides of the same coin. And when we stop the fight, we start seeing the possibilities and that's when we stretch our mind stretch our brain and that goes into relationship we've got to see the possibilities we've got to see that partner I mean for 32 years I've been married and there's been times where I have not seen my husband Max's other side point of view I haven't got in that space that you've Mm -hmm. just described and it's caused a conflict but as soon as I've actually got in that space with hey he's got the that's his view I don't have to make him think Mm -hmm. like me and if he doesn't think like me it's okay but it was a relationship (laughs) killer when I try to make him think like me I think that's what you're saying isn't it (laughs) Exactly. Can, can I sit and be curious about your experience of the world? You know, and that I think at the end oh, of the day. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Can I Absolutely. sit and be curious about your experience of the world without feeling that threatened, without feeling that I have to fight you or justify that this is the only way and mine's the only way? Can you just sit with that and with curiosity? Can you hold, can you even get reactive, but observe it? Because that's human to be reactive. You know, it's human to, for your amygdala to kick in, for your, you know, to want to protect self-worth. But can you hold? Can you just hold? You know, and I... I, I love that. That's beautiful advice. That's, that's a relationship saver, isn't it? Oh, gosh. If you can get rid of, not get rid of, but I would say express and create a safe space for a couple adult tantrums every once in a while where you can express and not make it about each other. And I mean, that's when we start to hold back truths, like, hey, I feel like we're disconnected. Hey, I miss you. Hey, I resent you. Hey, I'm pissed at you. Hey, I'm carrying us. Sometimes I feel that way. Hey, I've ignored us. You know, like all these truths that exist between, you know, I always think of it as like the ether of the relationship. There's the truth. And then there's what we're talking about, which might be that we're just going through our day to day and forgetting about each other, taking each other for granted. But below that is so much like I know so many couples where their conversations with their friends are different than their conversations with each other. They tell the truths and the pains and the sufferings that the relationship needs to have exposed to people who are not in the fucking relationship. Mm, that's not, that's not going to work. No, but that's the majority of people. You know, Gosh, are you finding not, that? Is that the trend that you're seeing a lot of in, in, in the work that you're doing? Because that's like scary. I see that in life, you know, yeah, that people don't yeah. talk about hard things. They, they would rather drink wine and sweep it under the carpet and instead of saying i miss you or i want to leave you or i want to start again or whatever it is Mm. yeah this is brilliant and so you said something that's very powerful as a relationship saver and if it's not done it's a relationship killer you said give this have the space for the tantrums i mean that's a very unique angle very. Yeah, it's definitely different. I learned that from a psychotherapist named Robert Augustus. He calls it a conscious rant. That, I love that, it. A and you might do it on rant. your own. Yeah, and you might do it on your own. You might punch a pillow. You might, you know, just ways to release energy, release anger, grief, sadness. Okay, so I'll give you my I'll give you my word for that. Freaking out in the love zone. I love it. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Freaking Freak out, out in, in the, the love, love zone. zone. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to do it. And can I sit while my partner does that or not, yeah. or give space to them to do it? To do it, yeah. yeah. So to work out, sometimes you need the space, sometimes you don't need the space, sometimes you need to see what that person's freaking out and give them and not be scared by what you see, because that can be something, you know, when your partner goes through a series of emotions. Okay, so that leads me straight to the next question is like, what are some things that you think women need to know about men that could help in a relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important if you're a male listening to this and you go, not me. Great. That's what's called individuating and being an adult, filtering the information that doesn't fit you. And same for women and people in general. But I'd say on average, one thing that I find really interesting is that, you know, when you think about whatever age a man is, so let's say he's 40, up until he's met someone who can hold space for his emotional experience to find the words You have to remember that from like a socialized, again, I'm generalizing, but from a socializing perspective, men are not socialized to communicate their feelings. The only real two feelings they might be allowed is aggression, not anger. Anger can be clean and beautiful and transformative. Aggression and maybe joy. And if I'm missing any emotions in there, no worries. 
But those are sort of the two that we've culturally encouraged. One is important for war. One is important, you know, and we need, it's okay if men go away and die in war. But when you come home and you watch your best friend die, why can't you find feelings? Why can't you find space? You know, and I, that's one thing that I try to reiterate a lot is when your partner who's male is trying to find the words, and this might align no matter your gender. If they grew up in an environment where it was not okay to share feelings or they were encouraged not to, or they were shamed for it, it takes so much courage to put words to feelings and they might get them wrong. Because you have to think every year up until that moment is a year that someone who is encouraged to be expressive has had as an advantage. So, you know, one's 40, 40 year old female, 40 year old male, one has been encouraged to speak, be emotive. And the other has not. And I mean, on the other side, women have been told that they're too much, not enough, you know, that they're overly expressive. And I and think if they if, do express, they're told that they're aggressive or whatever, you know, crazy, crazy or whatever or, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's twofold in both of those. One, the woman is because of patriarchy for the most part, is waiting for the male to validate her feelings that they're worthy. But in the expression is the validation, in the self-expression. Not It's not on their approval of your feelings. Just because someone doesn't validate your feelings doesn't make them not valid. And the other side of that is that as a male, and again, I'm speaking just in this example, if we don't know how to hold space for our own feelings, which we don't till we learn, we can't hold space for other people's feelings. We'll fumble around. We won't know how to meet you there because we won't have the language. We will want to fix, to help, to solve. Because that's all we know how to do is to solve, is to be a provider because that's what we're conditioned to be. And I, I think there's a lot of men trapped in the prison of the identity of what a male is supposed to be. And then when they're supposed to be emotive and communicate, they're handcuffed in a lot of ways. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. So what's your advice to someone who's, because I know there's people listening to that right now. You know, mm. and if I just think back to my own marriage and to what, how my husband was brought up for like literally absentee parents and so on. And, and it was hard for him. I mean, I literally at the beginning of our marriage literally had to, and he's nine years older than me, had to help him express his feelings because that just was not what you did as a man, mm. you know, and you just, you just, die, and you just suppress it and you push it down. And although the love was there, but the ability to talk about, I feel sad because of this and this, and you know, that it's okay to cry. And, and they, it, it was a process of learning. And there's how many men are stuck in that, you know, it's, 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 and how many women are stuck in their patterns. I mean, it's time for us to just like stop all this stuff and start being real humans. Yeah. It's ironic because evolution and, and the patriarchy taught women to be attracted to toxicity, really toxic behaviors. And what they crave most is not that, but yet on a biological level, we often choose what's not good for us because of the biology. So that's an interesting conflict that exists. I see that a lot within, you know, someone says, I want a healthy relationship, but they keep staying in a pattern of toxic choices. There's many reasons for that, but one of them is the systemic training that women have been told and men have been told the thing I can suggest most is there's a form of dialogue called a MAGO dialogue, I-M-A-G-O. And there is, that's done by the Hendricks. That's the psychologist who wrote the book called Get in the Love You Want. You can Google the MAGO dialogue. And what it does is the Gottmans have a similar sort of process. And what it is, is, is that the way that we teach couples, but this could be true of workplaces. If you can do this at home, you can crush it at work which is the way that they structure these is actually based on how countries manage conflict. 
So there's three steps to it. And what it does is it allows it. So the first part is you ask permission to have the conversation first. Most people don't do that. We don't give the other person a choice. Right. Which is bomb them. Yeah. Right. And it's usually when, am I more important than the thing you're doing? It's usually a test, which I get that when there's a lot of contempt and resentment, we want to test. We want to see, we want to seek evidence that this person doesn't care when really they might just not know how to hear you, how to hold you. But what I love about the dialogue first part is to request, can you talk? Then what occurs is the person can say, no, I can't right now. And they have to come back within 24 hours. So there is a, a limit on the time. The other side of it too is then you express what's going on for you. The other person has to mirror it back, repeat back to you what they heard you say, and then ask, "Is did I get all that right? Is there more? And the person gets to say, did you get it right or did you not? And what's really cool about it is as a couple, it one gives structure to your dialogue in a way that's super healthy, teaches active listening. It's going to feel like a crawl at first and it's Likely, it is also likely going to feel like you're going to want to get triggered. You're going to want to get mad. You're going to want to give your feedback, but you're literally not allowed to tell the other person how you feel about what they're saying. You're not. You have to learn how to hear them and how to mirror. mirror. It's amazing because what it does is it repatterns people's nervous systems together. They actually learn how to have conflict that leads to connection and deeper intimacy. So, any couple's caught, look, anyone can learn. I mean, 10 years ago, eight years ago, when I got into conflict with a partner, I would shut down and not be able to use words. So, you know, it's anyone can change. You can change and you can learn that. And I love that, that tool. I've heard that explained a few times, but you've explained it better than I've heard before. It's really excellent. And it really does. Thank it's you. brilliant. It's, it's, it's just so logical too. You know, when you think about so what you've easy. just described and that's something people can take away now and apply in their relationship, whether you're married, whether you engage, whether you are preparing for a relationship, learn those skills. Even now you can, you can, you can apply those skills with friends. So it's not just, mm-hmm. you don't have to wait until you're in a romantic relationship, but your best friend, I mean, and it's just a, it's a great a family member. You can use those same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you might need it there. <laughs> and then that's great. Now in, in in quarantine, that's a really good tool. Not going to talk to you for the next twenty four hours. Let's do this whole thing. Maybe those are really good rules to bring into place for when you in in each of the spaces all the time. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, right now you need boundaries more than you ever did, and we need to learn boundaries. Boundaries are what curates our life. They're what protects us. They're what allows us to have self trust. If you don't believe that you're going to have your own back when shit hits the fan, then you're not, you're going to melt and you're not going to, you're going to project on other people. That's the thing. People don't realize that boundaries actually stop you projecting on other people. So when you have a boundary in a relationship, you are actually protecting, you're making yourself a better person because you meet oh, 100%. It's the, I always give the example, it's the oxygen mask in the plane. Put it on yourself before you put it oh, on. The- it so is. It's just a deep breath of I've got me. I've I've got got me, me. and then you can actually be productive in whatever the next step is in that relationship, which is amazing. Ladies, are you looking for the perfect, most comfy bra? Then you need to try my favorite brand, Third Love. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. They stand behind their products. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free for 60 days. I also love how Third Love gives back. 
Third Love donates all of their gently used return bras to women in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the United States. So far, Third Love has donated over $20 million in bras. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash drleaf now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash drleaf for 10% off today. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Mark, what about for someone who just went through a breakup and they're struggling with a broken heart? What advice would you give them to move on? We get asked that question so much, so I want you to answer it. I know you, I know you answer this one so well. <laughs> well, with heartbreak, the first part is stop coming up with things like, I shouldn't feel that way. I should be over them. I should. Does this mean I'm not? As soon as you say, I shouldn't feel something, it doesn't stop you from actually feeling something. It just actually shames yourself for feeling something. Yeah. So as soon as you shame yourself, you're not, you don't have access to the wisdom that's in the pain. You know, for me, I think breakups are honestly the most transformative opportunity for us. We don't even recognize how uh, there is no greater place, I would say, as a rock bottom to invent yourself, to find yourself, to heal yourself. Because the loss of someone else and the fracture that occurs in a relationship ending is really, you know, there's the biological thing that is the fracturing of the attachment system. I don't have someone I can depend on. They didn't choose me. Whatever the story might be, they cheated on me, they betrayed me. We don't recognize, one, the innate power we have in what we give meaning to. So when the store, when the relationship ends and they cheated on us, was it because of us or was it because of them, right? We get to apply what something means. And we also have to get real with ourselves that sometimes it is because of us. You know, that's true. But can you hold that truth and stay open? And I would say stay sober when you go through a breakup. Stay away from alcohol, drugs. Stay away from jumping in a new relationship. You know, get sober from everything that pulls you away from you. And that means people, that means sex, that means, and dive deep, dive deep within yourself. It's such an opportunity to look at where did I take a left when I should have taken a right? Where did I actually believe lies? Where did I forget about me? I think that's such a big one. Was this relationship the actual one I wanted? How did I not show up? How did they not show up? But the permission to do that, I honestly can't think of a better container for a deep awakening than heartbreak. And so when people tell me they're going through a breakup, one part of me says, I'm really sorry to hear that. And the other part of me says, fuck yeah, like this is it. Let's do this. Because this, I've got you now. You don't have the energy to pretend anymore. And that's great because all the masks you've worn, all the people you've pretended to be you don't have the energy to do that anymore. So let's take the anger that you have, the pain that you have, and let's you know become like the caterpillar and become the butterfly, which won't be the last time you turn from a caterpillar to a butterfly. But you really see in a breakup that if you placed your worth in the relationship status, then they're going to leave you so you can learn that your, relation, your worth doesn't live in your relationship status. That's why I think it's, it's very one of the good. most beautiful. That's very good to say that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but your worth, doesn't, your worth isn't in the relationship status. Your worth is in you, and the relationship enhances that. Yeah, so if your relationship's your life and you lose your relationship, it feels like you lose your life. 
and you might want to take your life. That's how, right? That's where we get to those places. And, you know, I went through a breakup last year and I, I understood from a psychological level, I thought to myself, like, I get why people take their lives. I get it because the pain was so immense. But what I sat in, and this has occurred more than once in my life, is that I, I would have tears running down my eyes and, and my cheeks and experiencing great grief. And I just sat in that and I just recognized the immense amount of beauty because it was just a sign that I can love, that I'm open to love. And we often say like, I'm never going to love again. I don't believe in love. Uh, but the, the That's irony pain of that. Speaking. That's the pain right. speaking. Mm -hmm. Well, and the irony of that is that the very thing that is telling, saying, getting you to say that is actually the very evidence that love exists. So, you know, so, that's a good way of swinging that. I love that. Well, it's an interesting paradox because you don't realize that whenever you love someone, you open yourself up and you feel what it is like to lose them. That's why love has a yeah pain to it, even as you're in the joys of it. It's Yeah, because there's always the chance it can end and you just don't know yeah. how or when, you know, and I think that's just there's the, but the fact that you feel that sting, it's part of that intense experience the gift of actually having that experience isn't it i think it reminds us of death mm. i think it does you know and that when it ends we are reminded that one day this will all cease to be in the in the form that it's in and that's where quantum physics can come in oh for sure teach you that you're a bunch of particles and you can well, love still waves. be here at, at your most <laughs> fundamental level you are waves of love and that is for me phenomenal and it's you know when you connect with another so human it is and this is one of my favorite quantum physicists is Christopher Fuchs and he's more like a like like a C.S. Lewis type writing all these letters and he he writes he's famous for the letters he writes about quantum physics it's interesting and he always talks about the fact that it's not about you it's about you in the world you know and yes. it's just like you you can never you can never take someone else's waves but your waves are carrying each other you know like a wave will build and a wave will flatten and that kind of stuff so it's just a beautiful way because it's very it's philosophical but it's also very scientific i you love know? that it is it's beautiful and i love what you said about you know just like how they love that when you feel love it's almost scary because of the pain that we automatically when you're totally in love with someone and you experience that there's always that hovering almost like a hovering anxiety sort of floating exactly, awareness yeah. that this i could lose this you know and i think we almost need to have that almost like a momentum mori kind of moments we what if this is the last moment i have with this person the last day i have with this person what if this is my last day and i think when we keep that that in our mind at the forefront of our mind it shifts how we look at our relationship it shifts how you look at that person i find that with with my, my husband and i we work together 24 7 we work together we live together we, we always together so quarantine for us is just our normal life <laughs> and you know these and mm. that we've got to that point where every moment and it's it's happened over you know you can slip into the business and get irritated with each other but we have developed we have chosen over the 32 years we've been together to have that momentum mori concept that we so we appreciate every moment and even through the fights they're not worth continuing because mm. that could be the last thing you say to each other and, and it's not and it isn't easy mark these times where you just can't you know you, you don't want to feel like that but it's become easier and it's now become a lifestyle so it's now mm. we look at each other differently that. It really does work. I mean, that's just my five cents worth. For 32 years of marriage, it's like, it's it works. That's a lot of experience. And, it, you know, I think of Dr. Alexandra Salman has a beautiful thing I remember reading that she wrote that said, your marriage that lasts a lifetime will be a marriage with many people. 
and where they will change and be different. And it might be the same person, you know, and that's that. Cause you that do they change. Will, right. And we, as we should, you know, I'm so glad I'm not the same oh, person gosh, I was me at too. 22 or 25. Exactly. And there's periods in my life I didn't like who I was, you know, now, you know, it's, I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. You know, that you've learned and grown same. forward from that. Yeah. I was so blind, you know, to different ways I communicated that were misogynistic and, you know, to look it back and think like, this is often how the world shapes us to fit into the roles that what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be in between and recognizing that none of us fit in that narrow box. We individuals, sometimes people will ask me, and I used to mistakenly teach about the male-female brain, and I don't anymore. I actually refuse to because I don't, because I, I, one of the things I always would say, and I say it now, is that it's first and foremost you. And yes, there is, there are differences. Obviously, there are differences, but we've got to be careful of putting value on the differences. They're not value, you know, it's not value, differences are not value judgments, if you know what I'm saying. So we've yes, got to be super yes, careful. Yes, so we've got to recognize that first and foremost, you're an individual and you're expressing your individuality through your maleness and your femaleness. And when you take it from that angle, it's much more, you know, it's much, it's you, it's the unique individual as opposed to mm. you're a male, you're a female. And then it allows for so much more expansion and quality in your relationship. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question. And as before I do that, it's just made me think that we have to have more discussions because we're getting into some really important stuff that I think we need to talk, dive into deeper. And I'd love to invite you back again, especially to talk about things like the roles that, you know, that, that roles and even toxic masculinity and toxic femininity where we've gone, mm-hmm. you know, just all this mix up. And, That's and, a fascinating and, subject too. I would love to. I think so. I think we should dive into that. So that'll be really good to explore. But I'm going to, for today, if I may ask you one more question. That is, how do we know the difference between being, we've got to be vulnerable. Everyone knows now. It's a big thing. Everyone talks about being vulnerable and authentic, and it's good that we're talking about that now. But how do we know when we've crossed the line of being too vulnerable, that we've actually taken our vulnerability and imposed that on someone else? Does that make sense? Have I asked that question? When does it cross the line and become a situation of trying to put all your problems and insecurities on someone else? You know, so what's the balance? It definitely requires one. The question is the invitation to a really high level of self-awareness and responsibility for self, which I apply to anyone who's open to asking that question, because what occurs in that moment is really finding the line between courageous vulnerability and wound-based oversharing. Oh, I love that. Okay. So courageous vulnerability, which is obviously the correct one, and then wound-based sharing. Yeah. Oversharing. I like to think of it. Oversharing. So it's two different, completely two different angles. Yeah. So the first comes from a place of self-worth and the second one comes from a place of often proving a story. So if I've heard my whole life that I'm too much, right? Or people have told me that, or my parents told me that, or there was no space for my emotional experience. You often get the energetics from someone who's in that wounded place that they feel kind of like a bulldozer. They're aggressive, they're more assertive, and they'll use lines like, this is just who I am. That is a classic line from someone who overshares and is a bulldozer. Now, both of them come from fear. They come from fear like, I'm just going to pour out all of me because if you can't handle it, then I'm not for you. But what occurs is it keeps creating the same story, which is it's too much because you're not too much. It's just that the other person hasn't earned the right to our story yet. So. 
when we get secure and deep within ourselves and realize that our story is validated by our own validation, and that involves going into your stuff, your darker stuff. And I don't mean dark in a bad way. I just mean the stuff we don't want to look at. Yeah, the stuff that's you hide in the closet in a neat little box pretending is not there. But, you know, I'll be the first to say we all have shadow sides. We all have every characteristic has a dark side of it. It's just which one do you express? And when we can go and learn our story. And there is some beautiful research on that. It's not what happens in your story that matters. It's how you tell the story of what happens. Oh, that's really good. It's not, it's not yours. Just say that again. So it's not. So when I ask someone, like, tell me the story of your life, it's not what happened in the story in their life. It's how they tell the story of what happened. Much like uh, relational outcomes are, can be predicted by the couple telling the story of how they first met. So it just shows you there's like, you know, is there joy? Is there excitement? Are they playfully going along? And and that's where you can look at the pain that you've had and you can, you know, find the wisdom within it. As soon as you learn from your suffering and you learn from your pain and you grow from it, that's the thing is I always ask every painful moment that's sticky. We all have them. Sticky moments from our childhood, yeah, from our yeah. adolescence, from school. Gosh, let's be honest. School is a It's like a scary growth. place. Yeah, that's like a really Fuck. scary place. <laughs> right. And the most and vulnerable, everyone. and we're there at the most vulnerable time of our life, between oh. 12 and 18. It's the, wor- it's the hardest part of the whole entire life cycle. And that's when so much damage happens in those years. Oh, so much. And, and trying to figure out where we fit, not realizing that we often don't fit into these. Neat little boxes. Yeah, that are so constricting of anyone's self-expression. And when we can look at those things and we can grow from them and we can say, okay, what is this experience that occurred? What is it inviting of me? How would I grow if I was to pay attention? What is it asking of me? And when you do that, and then you grow. So I had no boundaries in this experience. Now I have boundaries. Well, I'll never get back to that place ever again because I've changed my behavior. It's impossible that I'll go back to that specific scenario because I'm choosing a different life. I'm taking a right wherever I used to take lefts. I'm saying no where I used to say yes to everything. I can only end up in places that I'm in charge of. That's why boundaries curate your life. And so when I do that, I've now expanded. Now that moment becomes one of the greatest teaching moments of my life. Well, now it's not sticky anymore. When I say, well, that was that time that I overcommitted to all these things and then I got to play, or I didn't honor myself and then my partner ended up cheating on me. That now becomes the moment that everything changed for you instead of the moment that everything got worse and the time that person broke your heart. And the time that, I mean, I have stories of heartbreak, but they're actually total stories of transcendence now. They're stories of You know, and it doesn't mean that it has to happen the moment the hurt occurs. It happens the moment that you decide to integrate the pain. And that's where knowledge. That's very good. It happens the moment you decide to integrate the pain. Well, and that's, that's when the moment becomes not sticky anymore. It becomes a place of gratitude. And when you can give your pain purpose, no, it ceases to hold you hostage because really being held hostage by our pain is because we haven't learned from it yet. Oh my gosh, you give your pain purpose and you cease to be held hostage. That's the perfect moment to end this discussion, to launch into the next one. This has been so amazing, so deep, Mark. I've loved it. It's been so good. So much. I think we hit some really, hit some sacred cows and got some good, really good tips <laughs> I love and that techniques. Term. I know, me too. I love it. It just works for, I don't know why it's a sacred cow, but anyway, I know I there's it. a whole history there, but anyway, but Mark, thank you. It's been amazing. 
having you and you talking having to you and let's do it again. And thank you for your time and your wisdom and your expertise. And it's been fantastic. I really enjoy our conversations. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love ours too. It is a beautiful time together. I agree with you. Where can people find out more about you? You can find me on Instagram at Create the Love, Facebook, Mark Groves, Twitter, Create the Love. I mean, you just Google my name. And, and they'll find if you. you. Want to, I have a podcast, the Mark Groves podcast, where we do all the stuff on relationship and we have to have you on talking about the I'd neurology. Oh my God. Oh yeah. yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to. Neuroplasticity. Have, yeah, it's the best. Everyone needs to know about that. Oh gosh. I just did in that clinical trial now, we just did a whole bunch more about the neuroplasticity and it's just wild. I mean, it's wonderful. Ah, I can't wait. You know, epigenetics and neuroplasticity are the science that we can change everything. We are oh, our greatest healers. We're absolutely. our greatest healers. We are brain surgeons and we don't have to have any blood. That's so <laughs> and do nuts. our brain surgery. Isn't that great? Yeah. I love it. You literally are doing precision brain surgery with every mind action. So everything that you've told us today is brain surgery, literally. So I love that. good job. Never well, thought of that. I didn't yeah. even have to go to medical school. Perfect. <laughs> look at it. I mean, look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, well, thank you, you so much. much. And we'll put your details in the show notes as well so people can find you. So thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.